0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Matthew Johnson, and today we'll be talking with Eddie Cole, Associate Professor of Higher Education and Organizational Change at UCLA. He's here to talk uh, to us about his new book, The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom. Eddie, welcome to the program. Hey, thanks for having me, Matt. So why don't we just start by, um, you know, allowing you to talk a little bit about why you wrote this book. What led you to write a book about college presidents and the black freedom movement?
1: Wow, that's a great question. And I love telling the the backstory about how I came to write about this, because it really starts in my hometown, going back to Bologi, Alabama. Um, It's a small town in West Central Alabama in Greene County. And uh, growing up there, um, I think it's just a wonderful place. Just had an amazing experience. But I grew up in a family of teachers, and that's important uh, when we think about what. What the book became. Um, So my parents were school teachers in small town West Alabama, um, as well as my father's parents were also school teachers. When you think of the one room and two room um, schoolhouses, that's where they started their careers, going back to the 1930s. And so I'd always had, you know, been interested in education and and understood the value of education, and particularly their role being members of uh, Black teacher associations and the connection between the Black teacher associations and the Black Freedom Movement. So it really was part of my family understanding when I think about that but by the time I came along through um, you know the Green county public schools uh, my high school was 100 black my county being small enough that it had one uh, high school and uh, that high school actually was around the corner from a predominantly white private academy and so when we you know Matt just just being frank right you, it's is clear to me even as a teenager that somewhere along the way there have been decisions made by educational leaders in the past uh, that still shape the present. And so I, in the back of my mind, that had always been the, been um, something that I've been grappling with about just how many decisions that uh, predated us shaped the way that we thought about schools and education and institutions of education just broadly, K-12 through higher education. So with that in the back of my mind, by the time I start to formally study higher education, uh, college presidents were uh certainly at the top of my mind, just wanted to know more about these individuals as we think about the broader role and influence of the American college and university, right? So it's one thing to think about my particular hometown and this, you know, small town um, school system is another thing to think about the big universities and so forth, because the narratives that were applicable to my hometown were also applicable to the University of Alabama nearby. And so that's really what pushed me into thinking more about the role of college presidents historically in the Black Freedom Movement.
0: So you focus um, every chapter on a different college president, right? And so I was wondering if you could just introduce listeners a little bit to some of the presidents you chose and, and why you chose them.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, you know, each president is paired with a broader racial issue. So I like to tell everyone that this is actually a history of the Black Freedom Movement as seen through the actions of college presidents. And so if we, if you were to work through the book, I start with uh, Martin Martin Jenkins, who's the president of Morgan State in Baltimore. More. And that looks at how the presidents of black colleges, particularly black presidents of black colleges, were grappling just navigating the overall seg- segregation uh, system of higher education in the South, uh, including the Upper South, throughout the Deep South. And then I move from focusing on the black college presidents into the next chapter that focuses on housing dis- discrimination. And so I go to major cities within the US and look at these influential urban universities, if you will. So the University of Pennsylvania, University of Chicago, um, the Harvard's, the MIT's, the M- NYU's, those sort of places. And how these college presidents came together and actually lobbied to federal officials uh, through the 1950s and shaped were influential in shaping federal housing policy, which in turn dumped millions of dollars to our universities to participate in urban renewal programs that displace so many thousands of black households throughout America. And then from there, I talk about college access being a racial issue and picking on myself, right? The, at the UCLA, uh, the University of California system and looking at uh, the UC system and how there was tension in the organizational structure of said system and where you could have a campus chancellor in the University of California system that was uh, supportive of the black freedom movement. An advocate for racial equity, but at the same time, the University of California system, from the system office, um, oftentimes someone like Clark Kerr um, running the UC system, uh, butting heads with Franklin Murphy, who's the chancellor of UCLA. And then from there, I moved down south. I do, uh, I studied uh, John Davis Williams at the University of Mississippi and Frank Rose at the University of Alabama. And I use those two examples as a before and after, if you will, around this broader question about desegregation, deep South all white universities. Right. And so you look at a John Davis Williams and I follow him after, mostly after the James Meredith, um, uh, you know, Rose as the first black student at the University of Mississippi. And how does a university recover from a race riot? And then on the opposite side, going across state lines, they look at Frank Rose at the University of Alabama. I look at how he used the Mississippi uh, moment as a way to lead a university toward uh, desegregation desegregating without uh, racial violence. Right. And then I wrap up the book with uh, two chapters looking at free speech and Robert Goheen at Princeton, which is notable because it's before the free speech movement of 1964. Uh, So looking at Princeton as a unique example around the broader battle of race and free speech and what that means, Uh, knowing that uh, Princeton brought you know, characters from Fidel Castro to Martin Luther King to Malcolm X, uh, Alger Hiss, uh, all these controversial figures uh, and notably Ross Barnett, the white supremacist segregationist governor from Mississippi even comes to Princeton. And what does that mean for Princeton at the time where the university is just starting to recruit black students? Um, and then I wrap up looking at affirmative action, focusing on um, bringing it full circle, looking at black college presidents and the presidents of um, predominantly white institutions. Uh, Frank uh, Harrington, uh, Fred Harrington um, at the University of Wisconsin, um, being an example to where the original affirmative action programs are developed um, among a coalition of college presidents and how those those programs initially were focused on black colleges. But individuals that, you know, you know, Fred Harrington and other uh, predominantly white institution presidents really made it more so about race conscious admissions on their campuses, which has a a lasting impact to how we think about affirmative action today. So that's the rundown of the book. So when we think about college presidents, we or I at least generally don't kind of think
0: of them as these great champions of racial justice, right? But when you drove into the archives, what did you find? What were a college president's views of the black freedom movement?
1: (laughs) Uh, It varied as much as the general public did, uh, right? So there were instances where there were college presidents who were uh, really on board with the idea of understanding that yet, you know, for the United States to live up to its... Touted belief um, in being a democracy, uh, there had to be some um, unity in what universities were doing in the overall black freedom movement. I did find some of that in archives. Franklin Murphy, who becomes the chancellor at UCLA in 1960 until 68, is a fascinating example um, because he comes from the University of Kansas. And you don't you may not assume based on his background of being from, you know, Being born and raised in Kansas City, going to University of Kansas for undergrad uh, and then coming back to eventually become the chancellor of the University of Kansas as someone that becomes this sort of advocate for racial equity um, in higher education. Uh, But he does. Um, And he comes to Los Angeles to take over UCLA and um, he runs into many challenges and trying to push for UCLA uh, much faster than say the UC system was ready to go. Um, So that becomes uh, something interesting to find in archives, a surprise, if you will. But at the same time, there were presidents who were put the institution first, uh, certainly put the university before anything dealing with uh, racial progress. And I look at Lawrence Kipton, who's chancellor of the University of Chicago in the 1950s, as a perfect example in really pushing for urban renewal programs that despite the University of Chicago enrolling black students, despite the University of Chicago uh, issuing public statements, even in the Chicago Defender about how much it values black students and does not discriminate at the same time is actively working to shape housing policies uh, that, work counter to anything that the university is saying publicly and completely displaces so many black households, both in the Woodlawn community, south of Hyde Park, um, as well as the Washington Park um, community. These are both predominantly black that also borders Hyde Park to the West. One of the things that really struck me
0: about the book is that if a researcher didn't do what you did and just looked at the, the president's public statements that they would never, they would generally think that most of these presidents were opponents of the black freedom movement. But if you do what you do and get in deep into the archives and um, what you show is that a lot of these presidents um behind the scenes were doing really important racial inclusion work that didn't really show up in public, right? And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Like, What, what were some of these presidents doing behind the scenes um, that really worked to advance racial inclusion?
1: Oh, wow. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is so much going on when you look at the college presidency. And I, I always like to emphasize that if you want to Uh, study any issue on a college campus, at some point it comes through the president's office. And so there's so much richness when you really get into both the formal records of the president's office, but also uh, the private correspondence and their personal papers as well. So a couple examples that stand out to me. uh, I I look at Robert Goheen at Princeton University as someone who surprisingly, right, uh, you may not see it in public statements, but behind closed doors, He ends up meeting uh, with so many black leaders in the Princeton Township community. And so publicly, Ross Barnett, again, you know, segregationist governor from Mississippi, comes to Princeton, New Jersey to speak on the Princeton campus. And I mean, that obviously runs counter. It's a slap in the face, as many local residents said, to really fighting for uh, racial progress. But what Robert Goheen, as president of Princeton, Realizes he has to do is actually step beyond the campus and actually go into the community, and he meets with Ad Tyson, who's a prominent pastor of a local A.M.E. church. Uh, he, you know, he he demands that contractors with Princeton University uh, have non-discrimination clauses. He removes numerous names of uh, apartment renters and so forth. That if they discriminate, they can't be on university uh, recommended housing lists. All these sort of. Meetings and conversations are happening behind closed doors. And so a theme throughout the book really is understanding presidential networks, particularly these silent networks. And oftentimes, um, you know, these presidents were actively shaping policies and practices that had direct racial implications on American society, not just the U.S. College, but on American society at large. But to be able to pull that off and to sometimes appease the most conservative alumni these presidents had to do so silently. Absolutely fascinating to understand and see that unfold when you really get into the archives and see just how influential the American college has been and particularly how these individual leaders have shaped the Black freedom movement.
0: I think one of the other great things you do in this book is you show a lot of the constraints that presidents worked with, right? Is that even if they were somewhat sympathetic with the black freedom movement, it's not like they could just jump in, uh, at least it's kind of you, as you describe it, they can't really just do whatever they want to do at the university, right? So like, what are some of the problems the presidents face when they try to advance racial inclusion?
1: (laughs) Uh, There's always money, right? So you can follow the money. And oftentimes, you know, these, these universities, obviously the scale is significantly different today, but it's a direct parallel, if you will, um, past the present to understanding, you know, these presidents can't upset an alumni donor base. Right. Um, you know, then, you know, or now. And that was a restriction, particularly coming post World War Two, which is what I focus on the 1940s into the 1960s. And when you look at post World War II, there's this massive expansion of US higher education. Enrollment grows. um, I mean, it outpaces any projections that any university leader expected. Uh, all, you know, there's just so much going on. Buildings are going up everywhere, and so money becomes so critical to what the university needs to survive and thrive and keep up with the demand for higher education. So there's that part. There's the alumni donors and uh, you know private foundations and all all those other sort of things. But then there are also influential trustees. You can never sleep on just how complicated. Uh, government-appointed people are sitting on the Board of Trustees, uh, whether you're a state-supported institution, or in the case of a University of Chicago or Princeton University or University of Pennsylvania, these are very influential, very wealthy individuals who are sitting on the Board of Trustees. You got John D. Rockefeller III on the Princeton Board of Trustees at this point, right? Uh, And similar other people, Marshall Field and, you know, the wealthy Chicago generations of them, Marshall Field III and Marshall Field IV, uh, these individuals uh, certainly steer. They're significant in um, pushing back on what college presidents want to do in the case that racial equity oftentimes worked against uh, what some of these wealthy trustees uh, were used to doing in the sense of how they made their money. So there's this, you know, this obviously if we're going to talk about racism in higher education. You can't not talk about capitalism in the role of shaping the fight for racial equity. So these are some things that are pressed up against uh, these college presidents, as well as the, the influx of media right television wasn't as big of a thing in the 20s and 30s but by the time we get to the 50s and 60s uh you know national if not international broadcasts really shaped the perception of a number of these colleges and universities now I always like to point out this this wonderful wonderfully insightful uh, example from the front pr- front page of the Wall Street Journal in April 61 Talks about what it means for some of these universities to enroll students from other nations. And once they get to America, they get on the college campus and they see just how prominent racism is once they are on the U.S. college campus. So all of those factors uh, make it quite complex with how these college presidents can or cannot fight for racial equality.
0: And so, you know, with all of these constraints that are going on that you really document in the book, you end the book with the rise of affirmative action admissions, right? And so mm-hmm. I'm wondering how in the world do we get affirmative action admissions with all these constraints uh, on <laughs> college presidents?
1: Uh, great question. Uh, well, it, it really comes back to you know, 1963, right? The bloody year of 1963. And by that point, you've got, you know, John F. Kennedy as president of the United States for a couple of years now. And the campaign promises that he made around civil rights had not materialized. That's just to be frank. And so when you think about the images of, say, Birmingham, Alabama, this is a notable one. Right. Uh, You know, May 63 or even, you know, a few weeks before that, Martin Luther King's letter from the Birmingham jail in April 63. These moments really shape how the world is looking at the United States. And so the Kennedy administration actually I just found this wonderful archival gem uh, finding this letter from Kennedy to university leaders that ultimately says, you know, help your country. We need your help. Right. And this really speaks to uh, the new role and significance that the American college had acquired by this point in the sense that. Federal officials were looking toward the American college for um, solutions to the nation's problems. And in turn, federal officials looked toward college presidents because they led the institutions that were supposed to have the solutions to the nation's problems. And so in that case, that's how we ended up with uh, race conscious admissions, because the Kennedy administration actually asked, asked directly, College presidents, be it leading a predominantly white institution or leading uh, black colleges uh, across the South uh, to come together to come up with, quote, special programs. And the Kennedy administration did not tell these academic leaders what the special program should be, they just simply asked for special programs. And so these special programs that emerged, one was, you know, consciously, actively considering race and admissions, another you know was you know advanced graduate level training for black college faculty there were cultural and uh, partnership exchange programs between say you know predominantly white the, the more we- wealthy and better resourced institutions with black colleges so you had partnerships with the University of Michigan and Tuskegee you had the University of Wisconsin partner with T- Texas Southern North Carolina Central and North Carolina A&T. you had Indiana University with Stillman College in Alabama I mean you just had, Dozens of these partnerships emerge in this moment, uh, but ultimately uh, race conscious admissions because it was the one program that was spe- specific for uh, predominantly white institutions really takes off. And I oftentimes like to think of uh, that particular moment as an interesting shift uh, because it, it, it has this moment where all of a sudden black students are recruited to these campuses for the first time. But there are no support measures in place when these um, black students arrive at Columbia or Cornell or Michigan and all these other places in book for the first time. So just a fascinating, just a fascinating moment in American history that really changes the way we think about affirmative action today.
0: Yeah. So this book, you know, it talks about some things that. Um, Listeners might expect affirmative action, uh, segregation, housing discrimination, things that we, you know, often associate with the Black Freedom Movement. But it also introduces some issues that probably listeners don't normally connect with the Black Freedom Movement, like institutional autonomy and free speech. I mean, could you explain a little bit about how those issues are connected to the Black Freedom Movement on college oh, campuses? Yeah, you
1: know, this is this is just it's. I, I love that question because the book is so. F- Far-reaching, uh, you know, took me forever to do it, it seems, but it's so far-reaching in the sense that, yeah, when you think about institutional autonomy, right, organizational structure, that's one of the more, more um, you know, complicated, uh, bureaucratic uh, setups within higher education. And what that does is what it, how it shaped the Black Freedom Movement was it created built-in stall tactics that a university or college could not change too swiftly. Um, And we don't often think about uh, those kind of structures shaping the overall fight for the black freedom movement. And what does it mean when a university leader says, yes, I want to support um, the black freedom movement? I want to back, you know, the campus, you know, NAACP. I want to support, you know, our student freedom riders. But university structures and policies in place slow down even the chancellor or the president for a particular campus for being able to do that sort of thing. And when you're talking about, um, you know, academic freedom and institutional autonomy and free speech, these things are interwoven because what does it mean for a faculty member or even a student to actually come out and speak, uh, you know, to challenge white supremacy, right? To come out and actually say, we need, uh, you know, more black faculty on this campus, right? All those sort of mechanisms in place actually stifle that sort of language, that sort of push that occurs on campus. So, yeah, there are the blatant things, right? There's obviously housing discrimination and affirmative action and so forth, but there's so many other aspects of the university life, if you will, uh, that was really pushing against what these presidents and what students particularly uh, could do during this moment that we don't typically think about.
0: So you work in, at UCLA's Graduate School of Education. I'm sure that, you know, at least some of the students that you teach <laughs> want to become higher ed administrators at some point, right? And so, like, are there any lessons from this book that you, that, that they can learn from?
1: Yeah, absolutely, right? So one thing uh, that, I, that I always like to point out is uh, just the value of listening and seeing the community as an equal partner within the uh, educational enterprise oftentimes without what we see throughout history and what I, what I tend to pick up on today is that academic leaders, uh, university leaders, uh, senior level administrators oftentimes are preparing a public statement in response to an issue uh, oftentimes and not thinking about how can they engage a particular issue in partnership with, the community or the students or the faculty and so forth, uh, I think was really insightful about the book. And you you mentioned this earlier that when you really dig into the archives, you see just how many um, behind, you know, closed doors conversations unfold to really be effective in leadership, to really push toward true racial equity on college campuses. And so I would advise, you know, any contemporary college president or aspiring college president that there's some value in being able to Uh, not only listening, but definitely change, change your frame to how you see uh, the community, you know, as a, as an equal partner. Uh, But also, you know, I would advise, you know, another lesson uh, for us in the present for, for, you know, listeners right now is to really think deeply about the outsized role that the American college and university has right now. Um, Knowing just how influential uh, the U.S. College is and how uh, whenever there's, you know, a state level or federal level, you know, issue, particularly around race, there's always these experts called in from a college or a university and so forth. And that's perfectly fine. But what that encourages us to do is think. What is really happening in terms of what these college presidents and university chancellors and other high level administrators are doing as far as shaping racial policies and practices? And that's really what I really want to uh, focus on about this book is that we're talking about policies and practices with so many racial implications. And these decisions ultimately rest uh, with university leaders in the same way that, uh, you know, during the fall, during, you know, during this fall of the pandemic season, we're looking at college football players uh, compete and travel across state lines to compete. But those decisions didn't come down to the head coach or the athletic director. Those were ultimately decisions um, made by college presidents and decisions that have significant racial implications, considering the disproportionate amount of black students who comprise of a revenue generating college football team. And so those sort of small things that we sort of just write off as. Yeah. OK, that's the decision that was made, have significant. Uh, racial implications. And so for anyone listening, uh, be it a current administrator or someone aspiring to administration, uh, there's so much more to understand about our present by really understanding the past decisions made by university leaders.
0: So I like ending interviews by talking about some of the difficulties of writing history. So I'm wondering, (laughs) what sort of problems or (laughs) obstacles did you face when you were researching this book?
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, this is... Uh, yeah. So one challenge, I always like to point this out. And, you know, this is this is how I always, you know, tell people that I know I, I know I was meant to write this book because, all you know, sometimes I went into the archives and there were multi decade restrictions placed on some president, you know, president's records and chancellor's records. Uh, that I did not anticipate. Right. And, you know, the longest I saw was like a 50 year restriction. And I always say that by the time I started doing research for this book, if I had wanted to research this book five, 10 years ago, a lot of these files wouldn't be open to the public yet. And it always leads me to think that even in the moment during the 1950s and 1960s, some of these college presidents, if in the back of their mind, were uncertain about some of the decisions that they made. Um, I think that's very telling that, particularly some of these files around race and, you know, campus desegregation, that sort of stuff. They have restrictions like that for so long. Um, That's that's quite telling. That's quite insightful. But talk about a challenge. Right. Just going from archive to archive. um, And, you know, overall, I ended up visiting nearly 30 colleges and universities across America to, to, you know, doing archival research and going to that many colleges. You know, it was a challenge to pull together. Some conversations, but I was actually, you know, flying, going to another city, another state to get the other side of the conversation where you get correspondence on one side um, and trying to get to pick up the correspondence on the other side. And University of Chicago, University of Wisconsin and University of Michigan are good three campuses. They have this sort of uh, dialogue internally and then dialogue among themselves. And those conversations are drastically different. So talk about a challenge uh, to pull this off. Uh, It was no easy feat um, at all, but I certainly feel um, quite, you know, rewarded uh, by what has become with this book and what it tells us um, so much about our present.
0: Yeah, we should be. This is an excellent book. Um, Eddie, thank you for being on the program.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Always happy to chat.
0: The book is the, uh, The Campus Color Line, College Presidents and the Struggle for Black Freedom. And thank you for tuning in to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.